and Logan reaches out to me. He sends me, it almost looked like a drunk Instagram message. I told him specifically what you're trying to do could go against SEC guidelines. And his literal response was, the SEC, let them come. If it's making someone money, it doesn't mean it will make you money. And you have to trust your own intuition, not what people are telling you. You'll be paid, you'll be paid. I can't tell you how many times I was promised. It's a negative feeling towards the crypto market as a whole. You don't have to trust Bitcoin. And you don't have to trust people to trust Bitcoin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with the Megaverse, our great new sponsors. A question for you. Do you subscribe on YouTube to this channel? And what about on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? If you don't, it would mean the absolute world to me if you were just to take the time to click subscribe on whichever channel you use to consume this content. The more subscribers I get, the better it's going to be for you because the better guests you can then listen to me interview. So if you've got a heart and you wouldn't mind doing me a big, big favor, I'd really appreciate that. I'll never ask anything else of you, just that. So if you can, please go ahead and do so. Today's guest. He is a crypto genius, made a fortune in it, but in a very controversial way as well. Jake Greenbaum, the crypto king. He was recently involved in a scam with CryptoZoo and Logan Paul, blamed in many respects for something he didn't do. And as you listen to this interview, you're going to learn his version of the events, what happened, what challenges he faced, why he isn't to blame for what happened, and what you would do in that situation. So I hope you enjoy this episode. This is a real saga that blew up in the whole crypto world. And this is a version of events from a guy that was at the heart of it. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. So Jake, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. Thank you, Spencer. I appreciate you having me on. You're here in Dubai. You spent a bit of time in Abu Dhabi. Let's first of all, for everyone that lives here in the UAE, listening to your impression of this place, what do you make of it? Absolutely stunning. Um, there's no place in the world where I felt safer. This is one of the only places you can wear a $10,000 watch or a million dollar watch. Leave it on the pool desk and no one's going to touch it. So there's a level of safety here that isn't felt anywhere. In Miami, you can't do any of that type of stuff. If you leave your cell phone somewhere, that cell phone's gone in 15 minutes. So being in a country that is very religious, but also extremely safe, it's, it's very warming. It's, it's a different feel than the rest of the world. Being an American, when you look at what's going on in the news at the moment with Israel and the, and the Gaza Strip and the Palestinians being attacked, does it make you feel 
less safe being in the Middle East? Or do people back home have that sense anyway? People back home have that sense 100%, but I haven't felt that at all since I've been here. Um, every Uber driver I get into is Mohammed or something related to that as far as the name goes, and they're all respectful. This is a country that's built on respect, and I really appreciate that because I am Jewish, I am pro-Israel. I don't like 90% of what Israel's doing, but I also don't like what 90% of Hamas is doing. So it's really hard to pick sides, especially when you're born Jewish and are Israeli. So I don't like the war at all. I wish tomorrow it would end. And so that's the one hard part about what's going on because it's a catastrophe, no matter how you look at it, no matter what side you're on. Yeah, there's no, min no winners no matter what, is there? Absolutely not. And there's only civilians that are suffering while the two parties who are in charge, nothing's really happening. And that's the worst part. Talk to me before we get started and talk about your career and investing and stuff like that. Talk to me about this relationship that I see all over social media with you and your mum and dad. I've never seen a guy as frequently post such adorable pictures with his mum and, and occasionally with dad too, but mainly with mum as you do. Why, why is your connection with them so strong and, and, and how's that relationship manifested itself over the years? So the relationship manifested itself over the years. I grew up primarily with my mom. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young. But every two weeks, my dad made it his business to make sure that he came to see us. He lived in New York. Every other weekend, he would fly all the way to Chicago to spend the weekend with us and go home. Almost bankrupted himself doing it because as you get older, jobs change, finances change. And we never had huge wealth. We, had, we were taken care of. My mom made sure we were fed. My mom made sure we had a great roof over our head, great school district. But it's not like we went on multiple vacations a year. We weren't that family going to Mexico, going to... Canada, going to Europe. My first time going into Europe was when I was in college. So we never had real wealth, as most people would presume. I grew up in a very well-off home, but never huge wealth. And so when I actually accumulated some wealth, before I really spoiled myself, I wanted to make sure they were taken care of. They've never seen the world. So while I travel the world, I make it my business every six months to bring my mom and then my dad out. And I give them the experiences that they never had having children so young, but now that they're still old enough to enjoy, we travel all over the world together. So mom's been to Singapore, mom's been to Thailand, mom's been to Paris and Portugal. I know I'm missing another one, um, but dad's been to Belize, dad's been to Thailand, dad's been all Bora, over. Bora Bora? Bora Bora, that was a fun one. Mom got mad at me about that one because she really <laughs> wanted to do Bora Bora. But I try to make sure I give my parents the enjoyment of seeing the world that I've now enjoyed myself. Because if I'm experiencing everything and calling home from these places, they don't get jealous by any means. They're super excited for me, but there's no better feeling than being there with your parents and watching them light up, seeing what you're able to provide them for the first time. Because these vacations, I make it my business to take care of them on. This isn't for my mom to pay for the hotels. This is so I can show my mom I'm grateful for having always supported me. And getting into things like crypto, getting into things like business ventures as an entrepreneur in college, many parents would doubt your success. My mom never once doubted me. My mom was the first person to be like, do you need to borrow a little bit of money? Like, pay me back when you've got it. Whereas a lot of parents would be like, you need your college degree, you need to follow this meticulous steps in order. And my mom was never that person. My mom was like, you build your own path. If you want to wear a black, a black tee and jeans every day of your life, you figure out a path that lets you do that. And then when I found crypto, they were even more Doubtful at first because I was studying law in Florida. I passed the bar exam. The board in Florida gave me a little bit of a hard time to be an attorney. And so I needed to pivot. Crypto was my pivot. 
but most parents would think he's pivoting from law to crypto. Insanity. What's he doing? And I didn't feel that once from my parents. I had nothing but support the entire time. So because of how much they supported me, even just emotionally, not even really financially that whole time, I want to make sure they know I appreciate them. And my way of showing that appreciation is bringing them on my adventures, making sure they know I care. My mom talks to me every single day, sometimes twice, because it's a 12-hour time difference. So she'll go to sleep, shoot me a text message, and wake up and shoot me a call. And I don't know any 33-year-olds that talk to their mom once or twice a day. My dad's a little easier. I can talk to him once a week and he's happy. <laughs> but it's nice being able to have that type of relationship, even as a grown adult man, with your parents. Mm, it's very nice. As I look through your socials and see that, it just puts some warmth into my heart. So take me back to your, your journey into crypto, because I know you are in collectibles before, weren't you? Um, that was actually a pivot during the bear market of like 2018, 2019. Ah, so you got into crypto before collectibles? Yes, I was in crypto 2017. I caught the tail end of the bull run, and I managed to turn a couple thousand into an enormous amount, um, seven figures plus. And then I had no idea how to manage wealth. I never had that type of money. No one in my family had the ability to provide guidance on what you do with your first seven figures. And so it was gone as soon as I made it. I may have made it in four months, and two months later, it was back down to 100000 which coming up from 7000 to 100, you're still making good money, but it wasn't the money you had that's like real money where you can go out and buy a Ferrari if you felt like it. It was, now I need to be conservative again. So what did you do then? So, so you make this money really quickly, and there's been some people that have done that before. What, what did you do, okay? And if you had your time again, what would you have done differently? So I had that opportunity again on the second bull run. Hold on, I want to know first of all what, first you did, what you did with that. You got, you got up to seven figures. How did it come back down? Did you reinvest I, it or did you spend it? Um, didn't spend almost anything. I lost 90 plus percent of it doing exactly what I did to make the money. Picking coins, picking, trying to predict where the market would go and thinking if Bitcoin and crypto was the future, there is no downside. It won't go back down. It can't go back down, right? No, I was completely wrong. <laughs> and so I held Bitcoin from 20 back down to four, realized I'm an absolute moron, and then doubled down. But I doubled down because my parents are like, do you believe in this? You really believe in this? And they actually gave me some liquidity at that point that I could pay back over the next year or two. And I bought 25 plus Bitcoin when it hit 4,000. Everyone thought I was crazy for doing it. People are like, Bitcoin's dead. My friends thought I was nuts. But now they're wanting investment advice from me five <laughs> years later. So um, I didn't do anything outlandish. I didn't do anything crazy. I just stayed in the market while the market was crashing, expecting it wouldn't crash and we'll bounce back. And we did, but it took three years. When you think about money, not necessarily crypto, but any asset class, whether it be equities, commodities, whatever it may be, why do you think people are so scared of learning about this kind of stuff when clearly knowing this subject can help you potentially multiply wealth? I think the majority of people are very short-minded. If you can make them a million dollars tomorrow, they want to know. But if you can teach them how to turn 10,000 into 100,000 over three years, they're not that interested. You talk to a wealth manager or a finance guy, and if they make 8% a year in the market consecutive with, consecutively with no losses, that's a major win. Mm. The majority of the population doesn't think like a finance guy. They think, I'm working a dead-end job, I'm working my nine-to-five or my nine-to-six, how do I come up? They don't want to spend four years coming up, they want to come up tomorrow. And that greed, that immediate need for gratification is what wrecks a lot of people, which is why you have people buying meme coins that drop 95%. I mean, 
I don't want to use any vulgar terms, but a lot of the meme coins come in your rocket. I mean, you're talking about coins that people thought they were going to get rich on, but what's the tokenomics? Do they know what tokenomics are? Do they know what market cap means? Do they know what circulating supply and the tokenomics over a distributive period actually does? They don't. They're just thinking, if I put money into this now, I'll be rich tomorrow. And the reality is, very rarely does that happen. The game's a long game. You can play the markets, but it's a longer game than three days. You have to be in it for three years. And most people don't want to commit three years of their lives to learning and understanding a new topic. Okay, well, that's an interesting point because, to me, you have you have people that don't get in at all and don't do anything. You have the people that get in, you know, the momentum investors. They see some performance and say, I'm missing out. I better get involved in something. And then you have the dynamic you described of the kind of like the get-rich-quick hunters. Invariably, all of those parties, okay, or the second two parties end up losing out. The first party doesn't get in. And when we compare the amount of people on the planet versus the amount of people that have bought into crypto, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority have never even touched crypto. But there's always been, ever since, and I'm 53 years old, ever since I was a kid, there's always been a situation where people go, well, if it's doing that well, there must be something dodgy about it, you know? There must be something about it that's uh, that's a little bit, you know, illegal or, you know, because mm-hmm. it can't be that good. And I would talk to my dad about stuff and, my dad, as he's got older, has turned into a cynic. And I'll tell him he's a cynic. He's like, I'm not a cynic, I'm a realist. You know? And I'm like, no, actually, you're a cynic. You're looking for the negative in something. When, when you look at people that have got that type of attitude and mentality, that's, you know, it's got to be dodgy if it does well. Did, did, that, did, that, did that kind of like attitude rub off on you along the way? And did it make you sometimes question what you might be doing? I originally got into crypto writing on Reddit. So I was looking for the next meme coin that could pull a 700% that week. So originally I was the... You were one of them then. You were one of these people that were looking for the get rich quick. I was 100% one of them, but I was one of them because I was at a dead end road with my law career. I had to sell my car, took $7,000 from my car sale and put it into crypto. So if I didn't turn that into 20, 30, 40,000, I wouldn't be able to pay rent. I wouldn't be able to survive that year off of food. I was living in South Florida. It's not cheap. And so I was in a position where I needed to get rich quick. That led to poor choices in um, asset selection. Once you actually look at specific projects, Bitcoin primarily, it's pretty simple to understand where its value comes from. So when cynics approach me and say, ah, crypto, there's no value there, I ask them, do you know about Bitcoin? Do you know about the network? It's the most secure computer network in the entire world. You don't think there's value in that? When you try to send money from the U.S. to India, it takes four plus days to process banking days. It has to clear the U.S., it has to clear Indian banks, and then it has to be transferred from their central bank to the bank account. Well, I had to pay a team in India for a project they were doing, and I sent them Bitcoin, and it got there in like three minutes. I realized the ability to move money around the world without all those um, red flags and all those government intervention had huge value. And when I realized that, I became more of a Bitcoin, I don't want to say maximist, because I still own other coins, but I realized that some specific coins have real value. And that real value doesn't come from people expecting appreciation. That real value comes from what is algorithmically based. Bitcoin, every four years during the halving, it becomes twice as hard to make the next Bitcoin. Well, what does that actually mean? It means right now, the cost to create a Bitcoin, depending on where you are in the world, is 18 to 22,000 based on electricity cost. Because some places you can get electricity for free if you know the local government, and there's other places where you have to pay full price for electricity. Mm-hmm. Well, in about 180 days, when we get to May of next year, and the halving occurs, 
the price to create the next Bitcoin, the algo, cuts it in half. It's only rewarding 50% of what it was before. So if it's 18,000 right now to make the next Bitcoin, in a couple years, in not a couple years, in a year and a, in a half a year, 180 days, it'll become twice as hard, meaning the price of each Bitcoin for the computers to generate will be in the 30s. But when Bitcoin's priced just to generate one at 38 to 40, the price of Bitcoin, assumingly, will appreciate with that. Because if you can create a Bitcoin for less than you can buy one off the market, people start mining. If you can buy one off the market then for cheaper than you can mine it, then you set up miners and you mine it. But either way, because it's algorithmically based to appreciate, just based on how difficult they are to generate, you know the price will appreciate every four years very, very consecutively. Which is why, in my opinion, Bitcoin markets are easy to predict. But they're not easy to predict on three-month and six-month intervals. They're easy to predict on swing trades over four years because you know when the halvings are. You can look at every prior halving. Bitcoin has gone up 5x from the first halving, 4.5x from the second halving, 3.8x, and it's been decreasing. But if the last one, which I believe was it was 20,000, went to 73 point, like 3.4, 3.5, well, the next halving, in my opinion, is going to push it 3x because we're on a descending scale on how much we go up, but we're still at 3.5. So even if it goes up times 3, times three from all-time high at 70000 means a $210,000 Bitcoin in the next cycle, which means the next three years. I tell people right now, Bitcoin's at 25000 Buy it, because within three years, it'll be 210000 People think I'm crazy. But the math is there. The math has been there. It's going really interesting you say this, five, because in, in, in the wealth management space, I, 30 years I've been in that space where I've sat down with people from the age of 20 to the age of 70 years old and talked to them about investing their money. And 99% of people actually don't care where the money's invested because they don't understand it. Whether that's a stock market, a mutual fund, whether that's you know, the, the oil futures, whatever it may be. It's like, so if I give you $100 and just, Spencer, let me get this right. You're going to give me $110 back in a year. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, great. Well, no, let me explain where the money goes. All right. And then all of a sudden you go into this conversation around, you know, we're going to, we're going to take UK small cap, you know, whatever it might be, that conversation, eyes glaze over. They're only focused on the outcome. Um, much like a diet, you know, what do we want? We want to lose 10 kilos or we want to lose 10 kilos. You know, well, yeah, but this is, this is, these, are, these are the supplements you've got to take. This is the food. It's like all becomes a little bit too much. You know, everybody wants the outcome. So when, when, I, look at, when I look at crypto, um, it, based upon the example you just gave, if you've got a price of 25 now and that price could go to 210 in three years, that's a 10x on three years. So here then comes the challenge. So I, Jake, okay, let's just imagine, I invest $100,000 now and in three years' time, my $100,000 can be a million dollars based upon those numbers. Is that correct? Close. Or maybe 800 based on the actual numbers. Approximately, yeah. Yes. Approximately. Okay, let's uh, 800 is great. Okay, it's going to 8x over the next three years. So then comes the issue of that's too good to be true in a lot of people's minds, which means if it's too good to be true means it carries an enormous amount of risk with it. Mm -hmm. And so that huge amount of risk that goes with it means that, that we can't be sure and you could lose everything. My argument with everybody is you could lose everything in whatever you invest in, okay? And if you leave it in the bank, inflation's overtaking the price of your interest rate anyway, so you're guaranteed to lose it in the bank. So those types of people, this is the interesting thing about this conversation, those types of people become fearful. The way you explained what was happening 
demonstrates to me that, that, that you have supreme confidence in that. That's quite a no-brainer for you. Oh. H- how could it not be? It's exceptionally extreme confidence. If Bitcoin, it might not be here in four years. If a better technology comes out, something not blockchain-based, something whatever the next level of where they take the blockchain, Bitcoin might not be here. But I've looked at it the last 12 years, and there have not been any technologies that even rival blockchain. So if Bitcoin is here, and this algorithm doesn't, doesn't change, which it doesn't, it's built into the code, it's pretty easy to predict where it's going. May it hit 180 and not 210? Okay. I'm not going to be mad about my 7x instead of my 10x. Hey, even if it's 4x over three years, it's still 400%. But most people, when I even say that to them, they don't want to lock up funds for three years. They want to say, three years, I mean, come on, you really, you really want me to lock up my money and not touch it for that period of time? So it's very hard to find the finance-educated individual. Like, you're from wealth management. I grew up in the finance world. So being in both of those, we have a better understanding of how the markets move. A lot of people don't. And if you compare it to a lot of the stocks, there are going to be stocks that do a lot more than 8x in the next four or five years. Crypto is one of the most lucrative asset classes, and Bitcoin is the safest in crypto. So if you want exposure to a lucrative but safe asset class, Bitcoin's your answer. Because and I'm not even a Bitcoin maximalist. So, okay, so then we're, essentially what we're doing is we're taking down the short and the, and the long term in terms of people's uh, investing strategy. Now, I, being a wealth manager, I come from the, the world of long term. Everything's long term. It's like retirement planning, planning for your kid's education, saving up to buy a property, you know, whatever it might be. There's a longer term approach to it. Short term invariably is cash in the bank and money you're prepared to lose. So everyone has long-term needs. So it's a case of getting those people to understand that crypto should become part of the long-term planning based upon what you've just said. Of course. And if that is the case, then what would your opinion be or your belief be around what percentage of people's portfolios should be in crypto or Bitcoin, whichever you suggest, for the long-term out of their total exposure? It depends on the individual. I don't recommend people investing in crypto what they can't afford to lose. I don't recommend people investing in the stock market what they can't afford to lose. But you have to understand what your life expenses are over that three years. If you have enough money to live because you have a solid job and you have income coming in, I would put it all on the line. Because the only way you really build wealth is by putting money on the line to build that wealth. You can't build wealth working your nine to five. You can have your nice home. You can live paycheck to paycheck. You can pay your mortgage and your car payments, no problem. But most people are less concerned about the long term and more concerned about next week. So I try to educate them regarding look for the long term and try to find the asset class that is safest with the highest returns. And because Bitcoin is literally, it's mathematically based, you can't argue with the math. It will appreciate based on the price of how much it costs to mine Bitcoin. And almost never does the price of Bitcoin fall under the cost to mine. And when it does, I buy as much as I can. What? Do you, do you, what, what are the threats, the political, governmental threats to Bitcoin that people don't understand or should be aware of? So that's one of my favorite questions because people say, what if the U.S. bans it tomorrow? What if there's a yeah. world order that comes to it and says electronic money is no longer relevant? Get rid of all of it. Great. Do it. Because look at what happened in the 1920s when the U.S. banned alcohol. Alcohol didn't go away. Prohibition didn't stop the selling of alcohol. Mm -hmm. The price of alcohol literally skyrocketed. So if they let it happen naturally, if the governments let Bitcoin happen naturally, I believe it will appreciate at the same rate. But if they try to ban it, Bitcoin doesn't go away tomorrow. It goes up exponentially tomorrow. 
because now the ability to attain it becomes near impossible. So the ones you hold, their value has now gone up extraordinarily. So my opinion is even if the government cracks down on Bitcoin, it'll just push the price higher more quickly because it's now illegal per their rules, but it's not illegal anywhere in the world. You'll be able to find somewhere that you can liquidate it profitably, and the price will go up much quicker than if the government did try to ban it. As I'm sure you know, BlackRock filed their ETF. They have a 99.7% success rate. They've had one ETF out of 600 fail. That being said, I doubt they have two. And if they do, they're just going to reapply. I doubt they have three failures. They've only had one out of 600 applied. BlackRock basically owns the U.S. government in the sense of people go work for the U.S. government, and then they go work for BlackRock as financial consultants with all of their friends still in the government. So the Bitcoin ETF will be approved. And if you've seen what happened with the gold ETF, gold was like $28 to $40 pre-ETF, and now we're trading at 2000 So there'll be a point where Bitcoin does stall out price-wise, but it's going to be after the halving. It's going to be after the ETF. It's going to be after Twitter incorporates wallets that have Bitcoin built in for every user across the board. Mm-hmm. And this year, we have gaming. The gaming world are a bunch of individuals who understand tech, understand the internet, know how to trade, and what it's going to happen is GTA 6, uh, Grand Theft Auto 6, mm-hmm. a bunch of these games are going to have built-in crypto wallets. You complete a task, you're rewarded in a cryptocurrency that you can exchange immediately. Well, that's going to bring millions of gamers into the space overnight. So the number of catalysts we have coming up in the next year is so significant that I would truly be surprised if we had any major real correction besides a nuclear war, which knock on wood, I pray, does not happen. But outside of a major, major, major black swan catalyst, we have 10 lined up in the next one-year period of time, which coincides with the next bull market. Two and a half years bear, one and a half to two years bull, and we're at the end of the two and a half year period. Historically, Bitcoin goes ballistic within six months of the halving or within three months after. So the next nine months are the most pivotal for major movement, and people need to have their positions already lined up. Interesting. For me, what's interesting about that is, like, will they get something approved? Well, who do they need to ask? I don't think they ask anyone. I think they tell people mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the power that they have. I think they're the people that are running so much of it anyway. So that's one thing. Secondly, when you, when you lean into to the, the, the information, the data around Bitcoin halving, that's fascinating. I didn't know enough about that. That makes that, That's making me. Is that making you thinking like that, Sophie? It's like if it's halving and it's pretty certain that's going to happen, you know, I want to increase my exposure to, to Bitcoin right now. I want to transfer some of my holdings over. Um, so, so I really buy into that. When I when I consider um, people investing in, in cryptocurrency, you know, everyone says to me, you know, what should I buy? And I'm like, I can't tell you what to buy. Okay, all I can tell you is what I do. You know, and I buy two coins, and I don't trade. I buy and hold. That's all I do. And I buy every month. And so I just put some money aside every single month and I buy that, just like I'm saving into my retirement program. Everyone in the States has an IRA or a 401k. In the UK, we have a UK pension. Here we have gratuity systems. And so everybody has the ability to take some of their money every month and put it away for the long term and put it into something that could be as exciting as this. I guarantee you, if it was an opportunity that wasn't crypto, but it was an exciting story, you know, such and such has just happened in India or China or blah, 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 blah. And there's a story behind it. Invariably, invariably, sorry, you, you'll have people that want to get involved in that story. Um, I, and I've experienced that along the way. 
Let's, let's talk about the challenges. We, we, we saw FTX and, and Sam Bankman-Fried and everything that happened there. I'm sure that every single crypto holder or people that were pro-crypto sat with their head in their hands thinking, what on earth has he done? You know, how could this happen? That's the last thing we needed. Um, uh, along with the challenges that Coinbase has had over time um, and, and just, just brings more kind of like negativity around something that doesn't really need the negativity it has we then have the you know the murmurs of what's going to happen to binance you know is, is, is that is that going to fall apart or be closed down eventually as well how do you choose if you're an investor how do you choose an exchange where, where do you go how do you do the research what's what you know and if anyone opens for example a binance account the truth is you open a binance account for the first time and you're not an investor you haven't got a clue how it works. It's gobbledygook. It really is. It's Forex Trading 101 platform stuff. It's it's actually institutional or experienced or knowledgeable investor type terminology on there. You know, if, Coming from wealth management, my first Binance account I opened, I was like, what the fuck? Hold on a minute. And, and yes, of course, there are training videos and stuff mm -hmm. you can watch. But that... That took me away from something being gamified or, or a great user experience. Mm -hmm. It just put me into a place where I'm sure someone sat here opening an account and go, what am I doing with my money? So how do I choose an exchange? Well, what would you say if I was, you know, we became mates and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get involved in this, mate. I listened to your advice. So where's the first account I should open? What would you tell me? I would tell you to do your research on what's been here the longest period of time. Okay. Because it's highly unlikely that if Binance, for example, it's been here seven plus years, they're not going away tomorrow. But I also don't recommend anyone keep their coins, their Bitcoin, their Ethereum, anything, unless they're trying to day trade it, which I don't recommend for newbies, on their exchange. The whole point of crypto is you can be your own bank. There are wallets set up where you can download them on your phone. You put your 12 words down, which is basically your secret passphrase, and no one can take that money from you. Unless you make a mistake clicking a wrong link and then accepting sending the money somewhere, that money is yours. And so if it, Binance goes down, your Bitcoin doesn't get lost because you need to buy it on the exchange, of course. But unless for the one hour you're transferring money in and then transferring it back out, you have an exchange failure, which is highly unlikely for an exchange that's been around seven plus years. Mm -hmm. I would say pick an exchange that's been around absolutely the longest period of time. And then the minute you have your coin, your long-term positions, as we've discussed, move them off the exchange. Put them on a hardware wallet. Put that hardware wallet in your safe. Give those 12 words Put them behind the photo that you love. So if, God forbid, you ever lose your hardware wallet, you can retrieve your money. An exchange hack means nothing to you. It just provides another opportunity to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or your meme coin at a lower price. So I would say pick an exchange, but don't pick an exchange to hold money on. I don't even hold money on Binance or Coinbase, and they're the most legitimate in the United States. I buy my coins and I transfer them because then I become my own bank versus being reliant on exchange. I wanted to go back one second to what you mentioned about Vanguard and BlackRock and all those guys. People question why the ETF would be so important. The ETF isn't important for the mom and pop trying to buy Bitcoin on their phone. If you want to buy Bitcoin, it's pretty simple at this point. You sign up for an account, you transfer some money in from your bank, you buy your Bitcoin. The ETF is not for the general population. It's for the pension funds. It's for the insurance companies that have $4 billion sitting and they need to invest it somewhere. Right now, those huge, huge, huge funds of wealth, we're talking close to a trillion dollars of liquidity that's in the stock market, they can't legally invest in Bitcoin because Bitcoin hasn't been determined an asset class mm -hmm. that they can invest in. Mm -hmm. Well, if an ETF is approved that owns spot Bitcoin, now those funds with more wealth than the general population is throwing around one Bitcoin, two Bitcoin, 
they can now legally have exposure to Bitcoin. So the ETF isn't for the normal person. It's for the insurance companies. Mm -hmm. It's for the retirement plans. It's for the hedge fund managers that previously could not own it as an asset class, but now have exposure to it because it was an ETF. So I wanted to make sure that was clear because a lot of people are like, the ETF won't do anything. And it's like, well, not for you, but for your retirement fund, now it can have 5 or 10 or 20% yeah, so exposure. It a huge, um, a huge amount of money into the e ecosystem as well that wasn't able to access it before. Bingo. Okay, and the supply and demand, you know, you know how that works. Mm. Okay, talk to me about you. You made some money. How old were you when you made money, enough money to stop? Stop. As in enough money to become financially secure. How old were you? Um, well, 2017, I got absolutely wrecked. Yeah. So, and then financial security is always changing because when I got into crypto originally, the goal was make 100,000 and start traveling the world. Well, I hit that 100,000 and realized I can start traveling the world, but I'll spend 100,000. <laughs> I'll spend 100,000 in a year and then I'm back to nothing. So you can't stop at 100,000. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, okay, I'll try to make a million. Well, each time you set a goal for yourself, the goal gets moved further and further and further back. You buy a sports car and realize, I can't put 15% of my wealth into a car. I need to double my goal now so I can afford the car and then the house. And then you realize, okay, if you can afford the car and the house, what about your family? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be driving around in a super sport, living the life in Miami, but my parents are worried about their paycheck week to week to week, whether or not they can cover rent, whether or not my dad at 70 plus years old is still working. That's not fair. So every time you set a goal for yourself for financial security, that goal always increases. So you have to come to terms with your number that you want to retire from is always moving, which is why even though I've made serious money, I don't feel, quote, financially secure until my whole family is taken care of. How many people in your family, mom and dad, brothers and sisters? Um, mom, dad are who I care about most. And I have an aunt with two little kids that she did um, without a partner. And I want to make sure they're taken care of also. So my next step is making sure I can take care of their college, maybe set them up with a car when they turn old enough to drive. And then once I have that type of setup, along with a couple of real estate properties, I'll feel secure. People probably don't know this side of you. There's probably another side of you that they dig into and find out about. But I want to know who this human being is behind it. Do you, do you care about humanity? I do. I care tremendously about humanity, which is when we were talking about Israel and Gaza and that back and forth. I'm Jewish and Israeli, but my heart breaks for Gaza, just like my heart broke when Hamas invaded Israel a few weeks ago, causing this entire catastrophe. So humanity is the most important, but I can't solve the problems of all of humanity. I can try to teach them how to place their money so they can climb the ladder in society, but my concern is my circle. If my circle, the people I love and care about, are okay, that's what matters the most to me. When you look at the career you've had so far, and if you had a chance to go back again, what did you say, 32? A 33 now. 33. You're so young. I'm, not, I'm old enough to be your dad. <laughs> You're 33 years old. If you went back to 23 years old right now, with all the lessons that you've learned along the way, what, what decisions would you have made that are different? I don't think I would have gone to law school, because once you get through, you realize, um, I don't want to say it's a scam, because for a lot of people, it sets them down a correct track. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't have gone through law school and I would tell myself, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> because if I had bought it 10 years ago, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I'd be on, on an island with a $200 million lot, yacht enjoying life. So Your own, your own island. My own island. <laughs> so um, I'd probably give myself just that little one-liner of advice. And the worst part was when I was in college, we'd play poker. And a couple of the poker games actually got robbed 
guys with shotguns broken robbed the games. We weren't playing for huge money. It was, you know, $500 or $1,000, but 10 guys at the table, a couple thousand in their pocket. We're talking 20, 30 grand. It's enough to, um, wow. to elicit a robbery. And so I came up with the solution. Bitcoin was between 25 and 50 at the time fluctuating. I said, guys, no more cash at the games. We don't need to come with guns to the games. Let's all show up with Bitcoin on our phone. We transfer it to the house. If someone robs us, they come to a game and there's no cash. They don't know the money's on the phone. They leave. It was the suit owner in town. It was the car dealer owner in town. It was a couple, I don't say drug dealers, but they were drug dealers in town that were playing the <laughs> poker games. And it was all cash. They're like, no, 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 this digital money, what if it goes away tomorrow? I'm not okay with it. So the worst part was I actually found out about Bitcoin when it was in the 20s, and I didn't buy any because I didn't have the courage to put my assets in there, and I was only looking at it as a solution for the robberies to the poker games. So I'm kind of bummed with myself because I found out about it early enough where I could have made real money. I mean, I've made real money, but like next-level type money, and I didn't take that opportunity. So I would try to fix those types of things instead of trying to find solutions to my problems at the time. I try to find a longer term solution to the investment strategy because at 22, 23, it was if I can make $500 at the poker game tonight, I can go out and have drinks with my friends for free. Mm -hmm. Short term thinking, 99% of the population, short term thinking, including myself at that age. So I would try to ingrain in myself longer term investment strategy is where your brain needs to be. And Bitcoin could be one of those asset classes that becomes something substantial, which here we are 10 years later, and it is. Who inspires you? That's a very good question. I'm, most people would be like, oh, Tony Robbins, uh, Gary Vee. I actually don't think so. I don't think every single person can change their life. I think it takes a lot of determination and a lot of knowledge to be able to really change who you are. Mm. And so the people that inspire me are my family. Watching what my parents gave up to raise two sons, watching my dad go through his retirement to see his two sons, watching my mom not go on vacations and work from nine to six every single night and still being there for family dinners, those types of people inspire me because they'll sacrifice anything for their family. Mm -hmm. So now that I have the money, I want to make sure they know I'd sacrifice anything for my circle. Okay, let's talk about this subject then that uh, everyone listening and watching right now is like, why haven't you asked him about this yet? <laughs> tell me what, first of all, tell me, um, a little bit about, about your relationship with this, this celebrity, Logan Paul. I know that he came to Dubai a couple of years ago and filled up a shopping centre. He seems to be very popular and uh, he's a wrestler and his brother's a boxer. I'm 53. He's not in my circle, if I'm really <laughs> honest with you. Um, and uh, I, I don't really know much about him. So, so, so who is he? So you mentioned I was in collectibles before I was in crypto. I was in crypto, lost a ton of money in crypto was sitting in the pool at my parents' house because I had to move back in because I was basically not bankrupt, but out of liquidity to be yeah. spending as I pleased. And I looked up my buddy and I go, I think I'm going to buy a Blastoise, which is a Pokemon card. Okay. And my friend looks at me and he's like, you're living at your parents' house. You're living in like a spare bedroom. You're going to be buying Pokemon cards? And the Pokemon card was $2,700. And my friend looked at me like I was crazy. But he just watched me make my money in crypto, make some money, and he's like, I'm going to believe in you, but you sound crazy. <laughs> so I went on eBay, and I bought one Blastoise. There was one other listed for $2,900. Bought the one for $2,900. There was one listed for $3,500. I bought the one for $3,500. So now I owned three Blastoises in first edition. Blast what? Hmm? 
three blast blastoises it's a pokemon that looks like a turtle with like jets coming out the top okay right so just a pokemon card but so i bought three different three. pokemon cards okay. three of the same card and there was one other for sale at 7000 so i listed mine for 6800 they hadn't even arrived in the mail yet i haven't received them yet but i got an offer for 6500 i each, just each of them for one uh-huh. But I just bought it for twenty five hundred. Hasn't even arrived yet. Immediately accepted the offer, six thousand five hundred minus eBay fees in my account the next day. I'm like, oh my god, did I just move the Pokemon market by buying three turtle cards off of eBay? And I did. So I sold the second one for another seven, and now I invested nine, had fourteen thousand, and a Blastoise for myself. In like a week. Something clicked. That's good money. I'm like not only is that good money, but there's hundreds of Pokemon cards. There's not just one. What if I did this with all of them? And so then I deployed capital and bought, cleared the markets, cleared the Pokemon markets. It's not an asset class that is um, enforceable. It's not an asset by any means. It's a piece of cardboard with a funny-looking animal on it, funny-looking creature. So basically overnight, I created an Instagram account posting these crazy Pokemon deals, Pokemon stuff. And I was reached out to by Logan. Eventually, my account blew up big enough where I was dealing with celebrities, WWE stars, kids of very famous um, rappers, very famous movie stars. And they all wanted some Pokemon cards because now I had made them popular again. So I started making some decent money selling Pokemon cards, and Logan reaches out to me. He sends me, it almost looked like a drunk Instagram message because I kept posting on my wall or on my story different pictures of the cards. Sent me a message, I want this one, I want this one, I want this one, this price, this price, this price. And I messaged him like, I'm not trying to be offensive, but you're like 30% under market right now. These auctions are ending much higher than what you're even offering me. And he said something I'll never forget. He goes, who you are in this space is your network the people you know, the exposure you get. You sell me these cards at this discount, and I'm going to blow Pokemon out of the water, and I'm going to make you known worldwide. Okay. I could take a 30% hit on the current market price because I bought them 80% lower. So I'm still making good money per card. It's just not how much I would make if I sold them one off at a time. Mm -hmm. So I flew to California, and that's where we did our big Pokemon deal. Lots of pictures online of me trading Pokemon cards with Logan for a stack of cash. I believed he bought five or six cards for $50,000 in cash. So that was a pretty good deal of a Pokemon transaction, and it was my first really big one. It was on YouTube, it was all over social media, and then Collectibles Guru was born. That was my nickname in the Pokemon world. So as that took off, I helped explain to Logan, if you clear the market of Pokemon cards, a market that I already had a huge holding of, then the price is almost up to you. The boxes of cards were going for like eighty dollars to $100,000 when I started, and then by the time Logan was doing it, they were going for 400000 So just opening a box of 36 packs, it's going for 12000 11000 per pack? For what reason? Because Logan Paul now own, owns them. And his amount of clout in the space drove huge value. When Logan messaged me, I didn't know who Logan was. I don't follow podcasts. I don't follow YouTube. I don't follow that type of stuff. I'm a crypto guy. So when Logan originally messaged me, I looked at it. I'm like, I didn't even answer. I'm like, this guy's trying to scam me for 30%. Like, fuck off. And then I was talking to one of my buddies, and they're like, Logan Paul messaged you? I'm like, yeah. They're like, did you even click his account? I'm like, no, he was trying to rip me off for 30%. 
They're like, click his account. I click the account, and I'm like, 20 million followers? Whew. Haven't seen an account with 20 million followers before, and he reached out to me. So I was like, this might be good for publicity. This might be good for the Pokemon market. This might be good for advertising. And we talked about how he can open a box on TV, open a box on YouTube, and the next 10 boxes he owns, each one of those 10 go up astronomically because of the marketing you provided that one box. Not to mention you get the viewership, you get the 10 million plus views, you get the YouTube money, you get everything associated with it, plus your actual holding in Pokemon appreciates also. Even when you don't know what's inside the box. That's the risk. That's the gamble. Because if you open up a pack and you find a first edition Charizard, that card could be worth 300000 more than the whole box is worth if it's in perfect condition. So people will, there's a 3% chance with 30 packs in the box of you finding that Charizard. People will spend 10000 with the hope they get the $350,000 card. Really? So that gamble is what makes people addicted to opening packs of basketball cards, baseball cards, Pokemon cards, because they're not doing it because they want everything. They're doing it looking for that one item that holds huge value. And that's how the Pokemon market boom really started. So have you got more money making money out doing that than you have on a roulette table or on a blackjack table? Is it Because that, you're essentially gambling, aren't you? $10,000 to gamble that you're going to get something in there. Bingo. Invariably, do you get your $10,000 back with the contents of the box? or um, Not unless you hit that Charizard. Every, every other card in the box besides Charizard and Blastoise, there are two cards that if you find, you'll break even or make money. One, you do a little bit better than break even, probably 2x on your money, and the other's 30x. Every other pack, you could basically throw out. I don't mean literally throw out. The cards yeah, could be worth have... 500 to 2,000, but you just spent 12,000 plus on a pack. Yeah. So you don't want 2,000 back. You want to hit yeah. the home run. Got it. Oh, okay. So that's how you got to know him. Yeah, so that's how I got to know him. Um, I got to know him and... Sounds like it must have been fun. It was a lot of fun. The Pokemon market was insane to watch because I was a kid opening these packs. I could never afford these cards when I was a kid. I never saw a first edition card, which was only printed for three days, the days Pokemon like started. I saw normal cards. So it was really fun owning the cards I was never able to have as a child. And so watching the market then boom, while I had all these very expensive and what I thought were unique looking cards. I mean, who really cares? It's a turtle with like turbo jets on its back. But I realized it transcended generations because guys in their 30s who are now having kids that were seven, eight, nine, they're opening packs with their kids. And the packs are ones you get at Walmart looking for a $400 card. But in 20 years, that $400 card, in theory, could be worth just like the original Charizard, 300000 so people are still speculating, buying $5 packs, hoping to find the $100 or $200 card. So the gambling, as far as opening packs in Pokemon, sports, it doesn't matter where you look, any packs, it hasn't stopped. And so realizing that it hasn't stopped, but Pokemon transcended the generations, I'm like, this is a good niche to be a part of. So how long did you stay in the collectibles market for? About a year and a half, two years. Okay, and so you would got to know Logan. So what, what, what then happened with that relationship um, during our first meeting, I was like, what do you do besides Pokemon? Like, you're a brilliant mind. I, you can't possibly just be a Pokemon dealer. That sounds crazy, right? And it was crazy. But he asked me what I did besides. I told him I'm in crypto. I actually do a lot of consulting in the NFT space. I'm working with a bunch of companies right now that are launching the last cycle. NFTs were super popular, especially among celebrities. I go, I'm working for a company right now, and they're basically rewarding me based on who I bring into the market and attach with their company. 
the company has since gone bankrupt along with 90 other percent of crypto companies. But at the time, they were recruiting a lot of big influencers. Right. So I was the guy trying to bring on rappers, artists, um, anyone who ha could have clout in the crypto space that wasn't already there. So I told Logan that's what I did on the side business. And he like looked at me and he's like, I don't believe in crypto. I think it's a scam. I've got, I don't have any interest in it. Like you can stop right there. I don't need to know more. Okay, no problem. Like we'll do our Pokemon deal. You put me on your YouTube channel, deal's a deal, not worried. Fast forward four months and the bull market kicked back in full swing. He's watching these NFTs go for two, $300,000 and NFTs, you know, digital assets on the blockchain space. Yeah. And I get a call back from him. Jake, I made a mistake. Like, what's up, Logan? I should have listened. I'm like, listened? He's like, you told me six months ago to get into the crypto market in the NFT space, and I brushed you off. Can you teach me about it? So I flew back out there, and I taught him most of my knowledge on the crypto space. You have to create utility. You have to create value. You have to create a product that's worthwhile to the consumer, and the consumer will be ecstatic about it. So for his next box break, so the first Pokemon box, he opened $11,100 per pack. Times 36, we're looking at like $370,000, $380,000. He bought the pack for like $130,000. So in one night, he made a quarter million dollars plus the ad revenue, plus the views, plus marketing, plus everything associated with it, he made it in a night. I go, Logan, NFTs are so popular right now, and the crypto space has so much money that if you attached an NFT of yourself, doesn't even matter what it looks like, to the pack, and then auction them, you'll be able to get far more than 11000 because people will speculate what your NFT will be worth. Mm. Guess the average of the next pack, same box, same everything that he broke three months later. Go on. 38000 So the packs went from 11000 apiece to 38000 because an NFT became attached to them. Insanity. He now sold the box for $1.2 that he bought for two hundred. Now, instead of making a quarter million in a day, he made a million liquid in one day. He How was that in that moment when that kind of that happened, though? When it's just like this, this, this penny dropped or this door happened, it was like, holy mother of God. What um, was that like for him? It was an aha moment and a moment he was very appreciative for. But what I was most taken aback by was I was the one who gave him this idea. I turned his $250,000, $300,000 project into $1.2 million. I wanted to buy one pack from the new box. I figured the one pack I was buying from the new box, if I just taught him how to make a million dollars in the crypto market, would be free. It was not. On the day of the pack opening, he comes over to me and goes, do you have the $30,000 in cash, the $38,000 in cash? And I wasn't going to be an asshole and be like, no, I didn't bring it. You, it should be a gift given how much money I'm making you. I got on my phone and I transferred him the Ethereum. So it was uncomfortable because it was always about money for Logan. How much money could you make your, there were no friends. It was um, how much money could you make, what knowledge can you give me and how can I make money off that knowledge? Even to the point of I made him a million dollars but didn't get my one pack for free. He so he didn't, he didn't acknowledge what you'd done for him? Um, the acknowledgement was, thank you, I appreciate your knowledge. You're allowed on the YouTube show, on the YouTube channel where he actually opened the boxes. No one was allowed up to open their packs. Everyone could buy them online and they could watch them be opened. He'd give a shout out to the person who was opening it. My thank you was, you're invited to my house. You can be on the show. You can be up there with me talking, no problem. 
And so he acknowledged it in his own way, but providing me a YouTube video isn't the same as providing me a $40,000 discount, a $38,000 discount when you're making 1.2 million. Did that piss you off? Yeah, honestly, it, it set a, it made me realize that someone who I thought was a friend that I was educating on this space didn't look at me as a friend at all. Looked at me as a business colleague that, not that he could take advantage of, but a business colleague that it was for him. It wasn't for me. It was always, what could he do to make the most money? Whereas he wanted the knowledge I had and wasn't going to reward it besides providing me the free marketing for my brand, collectibles guru or crypto yeah. king or whatever it may be. He, his gift to me was that. His gift to me was never monetary. It was never a thank you for what you made me. So would you describe him, and again, I don't know him, I've never met him. Would you describe him as a sociopath or a narcissist? You know, What kind of behavior and traits does he ca carry? I don't like to speak negative about anyone, even people I really don't like. Yeah. And I don't like either of the Paul brothers. They're not, um, they're not loyal and they're not honest businessmen. So I don't trust either of the Paul brothers, Jake or Logan. Um, I've tried to work with both of them, and none of the business dealings have gone successfully, mainly because of the promises they made were never fulfilled. And so, so you could they, are they just greedy? Very greedy. Um, and you could say narcissistic in the sense of my biggest fight with him, I told him specifically what you're trying to do could go against SEC guidelines. I told him, I was consulting him, and I told him, don't do it this way, you're making a mistake. And his literal response was, fuck the SEC, let them come. I can't be associated with that. that I mean, how much more narcissistic, narcissistic can you be than literally not caring about the people that make you money, not caring about people in your circle, and then when someone actually warns you, we can't go down this path, this is the wrong path, to say, you know what, we can do whatever I want because I want to do it, being Logan. And so that's really when I realized he wasn't someone I could associate with and I needed to start going my separate direction. As you're, as you're explaining that, it, I don't know why, but it, it took me to that movie, um, The Wolf of Wall Street, in my head. And it took me to that kind of like the behavior of those, those types of people in that movie. It's just like... Um, Greed is good, you know, uh, a scarce regard for others, you know, and just a, a real kind of selfish ambition to be, you know, or, or to fill themselves up with as much as they could. Ha when, when that happened that day that, that you had to transfer that Ethereum to pay for your pack, was that like an aha moment for you going, mm, I know who I'm dealing with now, or were you still not that, that away then? It was an aha moment, but at the same time, the aha moment went both ways. The aha moment went, he's using me for my knowledge. I can not use him, but I can benefit from his marketing. He blew out my brand. I had, I had cousins messaging me that I hadn't spoken to in years that were like second and third cousins being like, hey, can you come open Pokemon packs at my party because you're like the coolest guy in the world right now. So I realized he was bringing me benefit in a manner that I really hadn't analyzed as benefit I wanted or needed because I was already a face in crypto. And so I realized that the benefits could go both ways. There were fairly mutual benefits, but I always had to be concerned for he does not have my best interest in heart. And if he doesn't have my best interest in heart, after making him a million dollars teaching him how to open Pokemon packs, that I need to be weary moving forward with him because I could always be stabbed in the back. When you, <clears throat> how, how long was it between that happening and CryptoZoo becoming a thing? 
Um, probably six months. Six months. Okay, so you stayed in touch, okay, because CryptoZoo became a thing. And how long had they, had they worked on CryptoZoo, and how long were you involved in the, that part of the journey at so the beginning? originally he brought me on as a consultant. Mm -hmm. um, brought me on as a consultant, and on day one, he brought a developer to the table. And the developer explained something in crypto that I will never forget. Logan's idea was brilliant for the crypto space at the time. He wanted to take a picture of one animal, you buy an, an NFT. So it was kind of like Pokemon. You buy an egg, you don't know what's inside the egg. It could have a rare animal, it could have a common animal. The rare ones would theoretically be worth more, just like rare Pokemon cards mm -hmm. worth more. Great. But CryptoKitties is a game from 2017 where you can take a rare cat and a rare cat and breed them, I know this sounds crazy, and have an even more rare cat. <laughs> You laugh, but at the time, people were paying me a half an Ethereum to breed with my rare cats, with their digital rare cats. So I'd wake up every morning with a couple of Ethereum in my wallet because someone thought fornicating with my cat would build them more value to their portfolio. So I realized people wanted a gamified experience in the crypto space, and the concept was you bought eggs, the eggs would reveal themselves. If you had something rare, you had a more valuable asset, and if you bought a bunch of eggs or bought some other more rare asset, you can combine them and have a third asset. So it was a way to gamify the NFT space while generating you wealth. Because now instead of having one NFT and then a second, you could have a third. So the concept was great. Concept. As crazy as it sounds, I get your concept. The concept. Mathem math mathematically, I get that. So the concept was pretty solid. It was a cool idea. And we're going to reward the users of the website based on how much they're playing, based on how rare the animal's with, with the underlying token. So the whole concept was solid in its conceptual form. So on day one, he hired a dev, which I questioned because I've worked in the space for five years at that point, And every project I've been a part of that have had issues were dev issues. Even the issues with projects nowadays are dev miss something with the coding or the dev allows a friend to hack the code. So I'm always weary with devs in the space because blockchain space, I can't code. I'm not a coder. I don't understand the language. Um, even with audits, you don't know who's being paid off. So it's always worrisome. So on day one, the dev he hired, which I was told was an NSA employee, um, top tier, worked for the CIA, was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant mind. He writes on the board. I look at him, I go, can this idea be implemented? Because before we even begin, I need to know if we can do what Logan wants to do. I don't know if it can be done. Otherwise, why hasn't it been done? The dev makes a block, like a square, a line, a square, a line, a square on a whiteboard. And he goes, this is the blockchain. Anything I code into block one can be transferred to code two. And if we combine block one and block two, we can transfer it to code three with a new asset. You're not a developer. You need to stay in your lane. He's right. I was not a developer. But that didn't sound right to me. So I pulled Logan aside. I'm like, you're asking me to consult on this project. I don't trust the developer. What he's saying doesn't make sense to me. And I've been here five plus years, and no one's ever tried to explain blockchain that simplistic. It sounds like he's trying to explain it to an idiot which he might view all of us as idiots, but I don't think how he explained it, he knows what he's doing. And Logan goes, I hired you for marketing. I hired you for consulting. I appreciate your advice, but I'm choosing the team. You need to stay in your lane. Okay. At this point, I wasn't paid. I negotiated a piece of, I negotiated a piece of the project um, 
and it was never paid. So fast forward four or five months, I give Logan piece of advice after piece of advice after piece of advice, and every time I gave him advice, he did almost the exact opposite, followed by Jake, this is not for you to decide. This is my project. You need to stay in your lane. Eventually, we had a large blowout because he did something that I thought was um, beyond corrupt for the space. The whole thing about blockchain is it's an open market to trade. So Logan wanted to bring in people who knew about the project, who were excited about the project, no problem. Brought in those people. Some people invested 10000 Some people invested hundreds of thousands. But then when the project really started getting going, he didn't want anyone selling. Well, I'm sorry, you can't control the market buys and the market sells. If someone put in a quarter million dollars at a $10 million market cap, and now it's a $100 million market cap, their quarter million is worth $2.5 million. Well, there were people that did that. There were also people that put in a quarter million, didn't sell, and the market cap went to a billion. Well, now their 250000 is worth $25 million. And Logan goes, they're not welcome to sell. My point was, you can't control who buys and who sells. This is an open market for trading. Jake, stay in your lane. I'm in charge of this project. I basically called him a child god who was completely out of line. This is the information that's actually out there for in the news, um, in like the project like space of what was occurring. And every single person that had, I believe it was above a million dollars in tokens, was frozen. 400 wallets, maybe 295 wallets were frozen. Well, you can't do that. That goes against everything crypto is. How can you be your own bank if the person controlling the blockchain can come in and freeze wallets based on a whim? No rhyme or reason, just he has too much money. I'm not okay with him having that much money. He's now frozen. But it was okay for him to support the project when the project was fairly unknown and there was no support for it. It was okay for him to support it at a, at a $10 million or a $20 million market cap. But now that it's a billion-dollar market cap, now they're worthless to you? Those are the people you need to have on your side because those mm. are the people who are supporting you from day one. But just like I supported him from day one in Pokemon, it didn't matter. And so when he froze all the wallets, I said, Logan, I can't be a part of this project any longer. In the months I worked for CryptoZoo, I was never paid. I was one of those wallets that was frozen. So I put in my own money. I invested my own money into the project as it was becoming something exciting. Mm -hmm. He froze the wallet, which in essence stole a huge amount of money to me. I'm talking in the tens of millions of dollars. And after giving the advice of, you're not paying me, you've constructively fired me based on what you've done, and now you've stolen from me. So you never paid me. In essence, by never paying someone, you've constructively fired them. You never took my consulting advice, which was trying to lead you down the right path to not make these types of mistakes regarding the dev, regarding the wallets. And then after that, you're going to argue with me about what's legal and what's not legal and then steal 20 plus million dollars from me? I was irate. I literally had a team together in Chicago of attorneys. I was going to file a class action lawsuit and threatened it. His manager is actually a great guy. Um, Jeff Levin's a really good guy. And he basically said, Logan made some mistakes. Um, he, he, he fucked up. He, shouldn't have, he should have taken your advice. You should have been paid. All the things that you said are correct. How can we unwind this so it doesn't turn into litigation between the team? And I said, give me my tokens back. Give all 400 290 wallets their tokens back. This isn't just me at fault. You froze a lot of very important people in crypto. You froze a lot of people that really trusted this project from day one, 
and you screwed them over. Give them their money back. We can't give them their money back all at once. If we give it back all at once, the market will get destroyed. They're all pissed off at us. They're all going to sell off, and the market cap's going to go to zero, and the project will die on the spot. Mm-hmm. While this is happening, the dev that we were talking about has now absconded with money, with code, with all that stuff. And Logan realized the dev, who from day one I said was a bad apple, was now the sour apple, has completely expired. And so Logan's now dealing with having committed something which I said was fraud. It was arguable. You can't determine if a crypto asset that hasn't been declared a security is fraud or not. But I said, what you did was theft. It was fraud. You stole from everyone. You need to give it back. And I was basically let go. I was blocked from all the team communications. I was basically wiped from the existence of the project. But to stop me from filing that civil action, I was told by the manager over the next 10 months, it was supposed to be 10 weeks, but it never turned out to be 10 weeks, we will give you back your tokens slowly. We're going to airdrop you 10% a week, moving into perpetuity until all of your tokens have been returned. Not tokens that they gave me, tokens that I had bought on the market that were stolen from me. The tokens that were supposed to be given to me for working on the project never were. So I worked on this project for months, providing good legal advice, then was never paid, and then had my own holding that I put in of my own money, which was over $100,000, completely stolen. So the manager said, listen, we know we made a mistake. We prefer not having this huge litigation right now. We'd appreciate it if we can find a solution. While this is happening, everyone I know in crypto is blowing me up. Jake, you said you were a project. You said you were consulting on this. How can you be consulting if they stole all of our money? And I had buddies that had millions stolen. At the time, I had almost 4% of the circulating supply. The market cap once hit $2 billion. At a $2 billion market cap, which I was frozen out of, 4% of the supply is $80 million. Imagine having $80 million in your bank account when you don't even have a million in your bank account. Now it's gone. Overnight, nothing you can do because someone lied to you about the process of CryptoZoo. <coughs> Water, sorry. Not being, not being someone that's lived this story like you have, mm-hmm. okay, and just studying your nonverbal communication, the, what seems to ooze out of this is a real bitterness towards this situation. Like, I'm sure it's, you're a lot calmer now than you were. Of course. <laughs> but there are some I was irate. The most money I'd ever seen in my life was stolen, to, stolen from me by someone who I thought was trying to build this beautiful project. And at the beginning, it was supposed to be this beautiful project. You buy an egg, it hatches, you can combine the NFTs for a third egg, you're being rewarded. I never controlled the dev team. I never picked who was on the team. I consulted with what I thought was right the entire time. I was then fired without pay for the entire amount of work I did and then had the money I invested because I believed in the project stolen. So it's a bitterness, but also it felt horrible. It felt like I worked for all this time for nothing. You feel you were fucked over? Completely fucked over. So let's just take that, before we talk about the next part of the story, let's just take the psychology of that for a minute. So, I'm not going to say you, because that's current girlfriend. Let's say there's another girlfriend in your life and she cheats on you. What's that feeling that we all as men have, okay, if a partner cheats on us, okay? Describe it. It's horrible. It's complete, complete distrust. You believed in someone that would be there for you in your time of need, and then they just left. Or they lied to you so they didn't even have to leave, but kept using you for whatever you brought to the table. 
perfect, which means we're then going to a set of boxes. Okay, so first one is the angry one, okay, and the next one is the victim one, and so on and so forth, as we jump through these boxes, and eventually we find some peace. Tony Robbins says it brilliantly, okay, the greatest revenge is massive success, okay, for those people. And so I went through a situation that was different, but in 2012, I ha I'm, these emotions I'm identifying with because I went through similar emotions on something. My mum and dad got divorced when I was seven years old, okay? And my dad cheated on my mum, all right, with his secretary. My mum got revenge, and her revenge was to sleep with my dad's best friend. Now, this is in the 70s, it's a long time ago, and, and then I've got wonderful families, and my step-parents are amazing, and all that kind of stuff. So, but that sense of, you just done me, watch it, okay? Watch what's about to happen. That is a feeling and an emotion that everybody goes through, agreed? Agreed. What did you do to get one back? That's the thing. In my opinion, I didn't do anything to get one back, but I lost complete trust in the project. The project I was consulting for has now removed me from all chats. The okay. project I was supposed to be- Hold on, you're smart, mm -hmm. okay? Two intelligent guys talking to each other, okay? And, and we, we go through all these feelings and emotions. I, I, we're in a different state. We're not in our zen, just come back mm -hmm. from, you know, hiking in Nepal mm -hmm. and meditating for three days. We're in that kind of, you know, wound up annoyed. Whether it was revenge, whether it was getting your own back, or whether it was saving face, okay? It could have been any of those types of things, couldn't it? Depending on the individual. You've gone through a sense of emotions, which I completely identify with. I'm like, mm. totally, I, I get it, okay? We, people like us don't just walk away. We don't mm. just walk away and tip our hat and say, do you know what, that was a valuable lesson I learned there. Okay, I'll make sure I never make that mistake again. Yes and no, because the lesson was learned that I can't believe in someone based on just who they are in the social media space. So I learned the lesson, uh, yeah, but yeah. my getting back wasn't, quote, getting back. I wanted out of the project. The money that was stolen from me, I wanted that holding liquidated. So every week or every two weeks when they did send the tokens, I liquidated the position. And so in the end, people looked at me as if I was potentially a bad guy for selling off the tokens I had bought on the open market yeah. as the stolen tokens were given back to me. So my revenge wasn't revenge. I didn't try to sink the project. I didn't speak negatively about the project. All I did was every time they sent me my distribution of tokens, which were my own tokens I had bought, I sold them. But so did all 300 wallets that received their distribution of tokens. Because if you were just screwed over by your entire team, you weren't paid by your entire team, and now you're being given back the tokens that were stolen from you, mm -hmm. what would you do? You want to wait to see if they go back up? No, I want to liquidate them to an ass and then move on from the project. So I didn't do anything revengeful to get him back. I could have paid for articles. I could have paid for stories. I could have done an interview like this in the middle of the project. I was hoping the project would still be a success story in the long run, just without me part of it. Yeah. But I was going to have tokens distributed over the next, what turned out to be like almost a year. And as the tokens were given to me, I sold off. And I didn't care about moving the market. I didn't care about anything. I cared about liquidating my holding. It was once worth $70, $80 million at the top. I got nowhere close to that. I didn't even get 5% of that in the end. I got almost none of it back in the end. But every time I was given tokens, along with the other 200 wallets, all of them sold off. 
because how could you believe in a project that originally stole all the money you invested? So my act was, Jake, here are your tokens back on Monday. Monday afternoon, sold all my tokens. But what did that do to market price? Mm -hmm. If you're selling that number of tokens every couple weeks with 300 people doing it, it's heavy sell pressure. So the chart looked like this. Mm-hmm. But does that make me a bad guy for selling off the tokens I bought on the open market? So, so you're the bad guy in their mind because you sold off those tokens. The market price has, has fallen off a cliff, okay? Which means they now can't then encash their tokens that they're holding because guess what? They're worthless. No, worthless. Well, we're worth, still a market worth, cap. Okay, worth less. less. Yeah. Yes, but so were mine. Mine were collapsing with them. Every time I sold, my other eighty percent that was owed to me, the values now dropped twenty percent. Yeah. So every time I made a sale. I impacted both myself and the founders and the holders of the project, which that was the part that was uncomfortable because I knew I was impacting people that believed in the project. But at the same time, you can't steal that amount of money from someone, give it back to them in the form that could be stolen again, and expect them to do nothing. So what I ended up doing was just selling my tokens. That was it. My revenge was selling my own holding as they gave it back to me. And so did every other person that was part of the project. I was just the only face associated with the project. And every time you did it, was there a little flip in the bird, fuck you moment in your mind? Um, not a flip in the bird. It was a, a relief. Like I finally got out of this project that was screwing me over, that was doing things I recommended against, and now I'm finally able to liquidate the position I'd been holding for eight months, a year, with no success, having had it stolen, having not been paid. It wasn't like a fuck you to them because I just wanted out. Yeah. If they'd write me a check for the entire amount of tokens owed, I would have taken that. Yeah. That was never offered. It was you can take your tokens and do what you want with them. So I sold. Which is within your right. Uh, if you buy tokens on the open market and the price appreciates in crypto, I would expect you to sell. If you buy Bitcoin at twenty-five thousand and it runs to one hundred fifty thousand, you better sell. So as the price ran up and I was trying to sell and then had my tokens stolen. Well, now when you give them back, I'm going to sell. Even if the price, just like in Bitcoin, goes 120, 100, 80, 75, 75, 60, you're still getting rid of them when you're giving them back. Do, do, do people think you were, you were an integral part, uh, an outsider, um, a mastermind in a scam? Um, I wouldn't, is, is the public perception that? I wouldn't call it a scam because the actual goal from the beginning, I was there when I saw what the idea the ideation of it was, it was never supposed to be a scam. Fair enough. People say it turned out to be a scam because the devs rugged, the devs ran off with funds, the devs didn't complete the work. A lot of people in the project scammed other individuals, but I don't, you look at scams in crypto, you look at hacks, you look at rugs, those are scams. This was never any of that. This was a project that took a year plus to build from creating the images, creating the code, creating all that stuff. So it was never supposed to be. So you got something that starts with good intention, it just went wrong. It went wrong with a bunch of bad apples, and the bad apples I even recommended against, and I was just completely ignored. So then when I had the liquidity given back to me that was stolen, I sold off and walked away from the project. But when you're looking at the project from an outside perspective, and one person openly admits he sold a huge amount of tokens that he purchased, people say, he made money, he's the scammer. That's not how it works. That's not how scams work at all. Just because I made money, if I made a million dollars, but they stole 80 million, does that make me wrong for making a million dollars? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I would argue no. But someone like CoffeeZilla says, we traced your wallets, you made a million dollars, you are the wrong, you are what went wrong. No, that, that's not how it works. 
I had 80 million stolen from me, and I was able to liquidate a very small portion over a long period of time. That doesn't make me the bad guy. The bad guy was the person who froze the wallets. The bad guy was the dev who ran off with the code. Mm -hmm. The bad guy was the founder who ignored the good consulting advice. Mm -hmm. The person who made money that was traceable is not the bad guy. So in my opinion, I didn't do anything wrong besides negatively impacting a market that had already stolen from me. Why let the truth get in the way of a good story? What do you mean? Why let, why let the truth, okay, of what really happened get in the way of a good story? Like, you're, you're, you're not the bad guy, okay, but it's a good story that you are, okay? Publicly, it's a good story. And that's what people like CoffeeZilla go for, don't they? Well, they're, we know... You, 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 in, every, in every story, you need three parties. Mm -hmm. You need the hero, you need the villain, and you need the sage. In every movie, it's the same, okay? And they've got to find those protagonists. Mm -hmm. Who was the villain? And when you tell your side of the story, you've got your villains, you know? You've got mm -hmm. your sage and you've got your, and your hero. The, the guy that's the, the dev guy that flew off to Switzerland... He's got his version as well, hasn't he? And then CoffeeZilla has come up with, with, with um, their interpretation of events uh, based upon how they see it as well. I'm, I try and put myself in your shoes and I'd be frustrated. Anyone that actually sits down and talks with me and hears the story says, I would have sold all those tokens every time I got them. Yeah. I don't have a single person that says, oh yeah, I would have held the tokens for the next six months hoping they don't steal from me again. You'd have to be crazy to believe they weren't going to screw you Definitely. over. They screwed me over five times already. So my only thing was exiting the project. And exiting the project caused the market to fall. But at the same time, this is during when Bitcoin was 70 and then went all the way back down to 15. So this was when the market was falling in general. So you have a population and a demographic that's already livid in the crypto space. Projects are rugging left and right. There's scams everywhere. So it's super simple to say this project's a scam because the market price went down. No, this project's a scam. This project is not a scam. It's a failed project during a part of the market where 90% of projects fail. Most people don't realize that 90% of entrepreneurship ventures eventually fail within the first three years. So if you're betting on something in crypto, you have to assume outside of Bitcoin, you have a 90% failure rate. That doesn't mean 90% of projects are scams. That's what most people don't understand. The term scam is thrown around. Yeah, I yeah. lost money, it must be a scam. Yeah. That's no, not I the case. I come from wealth management. I, I, I've, I've had that thrown against me over the years as well. You know, a fund might have collapsed, something's gone wrong in the markets. Well, oh, you scammed me. I said, I didn't scam you. you know, I don't even control the money. I don't scam you. What do they say? Uh, Sun Tzu. So is, it, is it Sun Tzu? I can't remember Sun Tzu. Keep your friends closer and your enemies closer. I can't remember who it was. Art of War. Keep your friends closer and your enemies closer. When you think about the lessons you learn on that journey, uh, and you as a human being, what you learn about yourself, okay? That's for me, probably the most important part. When I've been through stuff like that, I've, I've taken some time to think and, and, and inwardly focus on myself uh, because I would beat myself up at first for being so stupid. You know, I'd be like, how did I, why did I trust these people? Or, you know, how did I get into this mess? You know, what, 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 was, what was I thinking? But then as, as time has gone by, I kind of find a way of making peace with it. And, you know, you go and talk to someone a bit older and a bit wiser. And they say, well, they're great, valuable lessons for life, aren't they? You know, as long as you take them as lessons and you, and you learn from them. How do you feel now, you know, all this time later about the whole situation? And what have you learned about yourself? Unfortunately, it's a negative feeling towards the crypto market as a whole. Outside of, that's why I became more of a Bitcoin maximalist. Because Bitcoin is algorithmically controlled. You don't have to trust Bitcoin. And you don't have to trust people to trust Bitcoin. 
a lot of these other meme coins, you have to trust the founders, you have to trust the biggest holders to not sell off, you have to trust people that you don't even know. Mm. So for me, I lost a lot of trust for people in general because I thought someone that I helped make a million dollars in Pokemon, I thought someone that I gave really good consulting advice to, I thought I'd be paid, I thought I wouldn't be stolen from. So it made me less trusting. And it's sad to say that, just like if your ex-girlfriend cheats on you, you're not gonna trust the next one because the first one didn't, because the first one screwed you over. You're child, aren't you? And so you're looking at the next one, it's like, I wonder who she's texting. I wonder what she did last weekend. Why wasn't she answering her phone? And so it feels sad because now I'm less trusting in the space, which is why I became more of a Bitcoin maximalist, because you realize most projects are to make the founders rich. Most projects aren't to deliver something worthwhile. So even if you're part of a project trying to deliver something worthwhile, if you fail, you're now called a scammer. Once again, we already talked about that's not what a scammer is. So to me, I learned the lesson of you have to be either completely in charge or be much closer with the people who are in charge so you don't get screwed over. Because otherwise, everyone's out for themselves, especially in the influencer space, especially in the crypto space, and you can't be trusting of everything that pops up. If it's making someone money, it doesn't mean it will make you money. And you have to trust your own intuition, not what people are telling you. You'll be paid, you'll be paid. I can't tell you how many times I was promised. You'll be paid in a few weeks, don't worry, like just sit with us, sit tight, it's coming. Never paid. So you have to, you become less trusting, just like with the girlfriend example. So mm -hmm. my biggest lesson was you can't trust almost anyone in the space. And that's really unfortunate because you wanna be able to trust everyone you do business with. And the reality is you can't. I'm 20 years older than you, and uh, I know for sure you can't trust anyone. The two people you can trust, though, are the people that you care about the most, and that's your mum and dad, and for sure they mm -hmm. won't let you down, and they'll always have you back. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with me. It's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate, but you appreciate you being open and frank with me and uh, just telling me how it is from your point of view. So thank you once again. Of course. I appreciate you having me on, Spencer. Thank you.